Section 11 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Walker. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b, Section 11, Chapter 13, Part 3. Edward next deliberated concerning the method of proceeding in the discussion of this great controversy. He gave orders that Balliol and such of the competitors as adhered to him should choose forty commissioners, Bruce and his adherents forty more. To these the king added twenty-four Englishmen. He ordered these hundred and four commissioners to examine the cause deliberately amongst themselves, and make their report to him, and he promised in the ensuing year to give his determination. Meanwhile he pretended that it was requisite to have all the fortresses of Scotland delivered into his hands, in order to enable him, without opposition, to put the true heir in possession of the crown, and this exorbitant demand was complied with, both by the states and by the claimants. The governors also of all the castles immediately resigned their command, except Umbraville, Earl of Angus, who refused, without a formal and particular acquittal from the Parliament and the several claimants, to surrender his fortress to so domineering an arbiter, who had given to Scotland so many just reasons of suspicion. Before this assembly broke up, which had fixed such a mark of dishonour on the nation, all the prelates and barons there present swore fealty to Edward, and that prince appointed commissioners to receive a like oath from all the other barons and persons of distinction in Scotland. The king, having finally made, as he imagined, this important acquisition, left the commissioners to sit at Berwick, and examine the titles of the several competitors who claimed the precarious crown, which Edward was willing for some time to allow the lawful heir to enjoy. He went southwards, both in order to assist at the funeral of his mother, Queen Eleanor, who died about this time, and to compose some differences which had arisen among his principal nobility. Gilbert, Earl of Gloucester, the greatest baron of the kingdom, had espoused the king's daughter, and being elated by that alliance, and still more by his own power, which, he thought, set him above the laws, he permitted his bailiffs and vassals to commit violence on the lands of Humphrey Bohun, Earl of the Hereford who retaliated the injury by like violence. But this was not a reign in which such illegal proceedings could pass with impunity. Edward procured a sentence against the two earls, committed them both to prison, and would not restore them to their liberty till he had exacted a fine of one thousand marks from Hereford, and one of ten thousand from his son-in-law. During this interval the titles of John Balliol and of Robert Bruce, whose claims appeared to be the best founded among the competitors for the crown of Scotland, were the subject of general disquisition, as well as of debate among the commissioners. Edward, in order to give greater authority to his intended decision, proposed this general question both to the commissioners and to all the celebrated lawyers in Europe. Whether a person descended from the elder sister, but farther removed by one degree, were preferable in the succession of kingdoms, fiefs, and other indivisible inheritances, to one descended from the younger sister but one degree nearer to the common stock. This was the true state of the case, and the principle of representation had now gained such ground everywhere that a uniform answer was returned to the king in the affirmative. 
he therefore pronounced sentence in favour of Balliol, and when Bruce, upon this disappointment, joined afterwards Lord Hastings and claimed a third of the kingdom, which he now pretended to be divisible, Edward, though his interests seemed more to require the partition of Scotland, again pronounced sentence in favour of Balliol. That competitor, upon renewing his oath of fealty to England, was put in possession of the kingdom. All his fortresses were restored to him, and the conduct of Edward, both in the deliberate solemnity of the proceedings and in the justice of the award, was so far unexceptional. Had the king entertained no other view than that of establishing his superiority over Scotland, though the iniquity of that claim was apparent, and was aggravated by the most egregious breach of trust, he might have fixed his pretensions, and have that important acquisition to his posterity. But he immediately proceeded in such a manner as made it evident that, not content with this usurpation, he aimed also at the absolute sovereignty and dominion of the kingdom. Instead of gradually inuring the Scots to the yoke, and exerting his rights of superiority with moderation, he encouraged all appeals to England, required King John himself by six different summons trivial occasions to come to England, refused him the privilege of defending his cause by a procurator, and obliged him to appear at the bar of his Parliament as a private person. These humiliating demands were hitherto quite unknown to a King of Scotland. They are, however, the necessary consequences of vassalage by the feudal law, and as there was no preceding instance of such treatment submitted to by a prince of that country, Edward must, from that circumstance alone, had there remained any doubt, have been himself convinced that his claim was altogether a usurpation. But his intention plainly was to enrage Balliol by these indignities, to engage him in rebellion, and to assume the dominion of the state as the punishment of his treason and felony. Accordingly, Balliol, though a prince of a soft and gentle spirit, returned into Scotland highly provoked at this usage, and determined at all hazards to vindicate his liberty. And the war which soon after broke out between France and England gave him a favourable opportunity of executing his purpose. The violence, robberies, and disorders to which that age was so subject were not confined to the licentious barons and their retainers at land. The sea was equally infested with piracy. The feeble execution of the laws had given license to all orders of men, and a general appetite for rapine and revenge, supported by a false point of honour, had also infected the merchants and mariners, and it pushed them on any provocation to seek redress by immediate retaliation upon the aggressors. A Norman and an English vessel met off the coast near Bayonne, and both of them having occasion for water, they sent their boats to land, and the several crews came at the same time to the same spring. There ensued a quarrel for the preference. A Norman, drawing his dagger, attempted to stab an Englishman, who, grappling with him, threw his adversary on the ground, and the Norman, as was pretended, falling on his own dagger, was slain. This scuffle between two seamen about water soon kindled a bloody war between the two nations, and involved a great part of Europe in the quarrel. The mariners of the Norman ship carried their complaints to the French king. Philip, without inquiring into the fact, without demanding redress, bade them take revenge, and trouble him no more about the matter. The Normans, who had been more regular than usual in applying to the crown, needed but this hint to proceed to immediate violence. They seized an English ship in the channel, and hanging among with some dogs, several of the crew on the yard-arm, in presence of their companions, dismissed the vessel. 
and bade the mariners inform their countrymen that vengeance was now taken for the blood of the Norman killed at Bayonne. This injury, accompanied with so general and deliberate an insult, was resented by the mariners of the Cinque Port, who, without carrying any complaint to the king or waiting for redress, retaliated by committing like barbarities on all French vessels without distinction. The French, provoked by their losses, preyed on the ships of all Edward's subjects, whether English or Gascon. The sea became a scene of piracy between the nations. The sovereigns, without either seconding or repressing the violence of their subjects, seemed to remain indifferent spectators. The English made private associations with the Irish and Dutch seamen, the French with the Flemish and Genoese, and the animosities of the people on both sides became every day more violent and barbarous. A fleet of two hundred Norman vessels set sail to the south for wine and other commodities, and in their passage seized all the English ships which they met with, hanged the seamen, and seized the goods. The inhabitants of the English seaports, informed of this incident, fitted out a fleet of sixty sail, stronger and better manned than the others, and awaited the enemy on their return. After an obstinate battle, they put them to rout, and sunk, destroyed, or took the greater part of them. No quarter was given, and it is pretended that the loss of the French amounted to fifteen thousand men, which is accounted for by this circumstance, that the Norman fleet was employed in transporting a considerable body of soldiers from the south. The affair was now become too important to be any longer overlooked by the sovereigns. On Philip sending an envoy to demand reparation and restitution, the king dispatched the Bishop of London to the French court, in order to accommodate the quarrel. He first said that the English courts of justice were open to all men, and if any Frenchman were injured, he might seek reparation by course of law. He next offered to adjust the matter by private arbiters, or by a personal interview with the King of France, or by a reference either to the Pope, or the College of Cardinals, or any particular cardinals agreed on by both parties. The French, probably the more disgusted, as they were hitherto losers in the quarrel, refused all these expedients. The vessels and the goods of merchants were confiscated on both sides. Depredations were continued by the Gascons on the western coast of France, as well as by the English in the Channel. Philip cited the king, as Duke of Guyenne, to appear in his court at Paris, and answer for these offences. And Edward, apprehensive of danger to that province, sent John Saint-Jean, an experienced soldier, to Bordeaux, and gave him directions to put Guyenne in a posture of defence. That he might, however, prevent a final rupture between the nations, the king dispatched his brother Edmund, Earl of Lancaster, to Paris. And as this prince had espoused the Queen of Navarre, mother to Jane, Queen of France, he seemed, on account of that alliance, the most proper person for finding expedients to accommodate the difference. Jane pretended to interpose with her good offices. Mary, the Queen Dowager, feigned the same amicable disposition, and these two princesses told Edmund that the circumstance the most difficult to adjust was the point of honour with Philip, who thought himself affronted by the injuries committed against him by his sub-vassals in Guyenne. But if Edward would once consent to give him Cizane and possession of that province, he would think his honour fully repaired, would engage to restore Guyenne immediately, and would accept of a very easy satisfaction for all the other injuries. The king was consulted on the occasion, and as he then found himself in immediate danger of war with the Scots, which he regarded as the more important concern, this politic prince, blinded by his favourite passion of subduing that nation, allowed himself to be deceived by so gross an artifice. 
he sent his brother orders to sign and execute the treaty with the two queens. Philip solemnly promised to execute his part of it, and the king's citation to appear in the court of France was accordingly recalled. But the French monarch was no sooner put in possession of Guienne than the citation was renewed, Edward was condemned for non-appearance, and Guienne, by a formal sentence, was declared to be forfeited and annexed to the crown. Edward, fallen into a like snare, with that which he himself had spread for the Scots, was enraged, and the more so as he was justly ashamed of his own conduct, in being so egregiously overreached by the court of France. Sensible of the extreme difficulties which he should encounter in the recovery of Gascony, where he had not retained a single place in his hands, he endeavoured to compensate that loss by forming alliances with several princes, who, he projected, should attack France on all quarters and make a diversion of her forces. Adolphus de Nassau, king of the Romans, entered into a treaty with him for that purpose, as did also Amadeus, count of Savoy, the archbishop of Cologne, the counts of Guild and Luxembourg, the Duke of Brabant and the Count of Bar, who had married his two daughters, Margaret and Eleanor. But these alliances were extremely burdensome to his narrow revenues, and proved in the issue entirely ineffectual. More impression was made on Guienne by an English army, which he completed by emptying the jails of many thousand thieves and robbers who had been confined there for their crimes. So low had the profession of arms fallen, and so much had it degenerated from the estimation in which it stood during the vigour of the feudal system. The king himself was detained in England, first by contrary winds, then by his apprehensions of a Scottish invasion, and by a rebellion of the Welsh, whom he repressed and brought again under subjection. The army which he sent to Guienne was commanded by his nephew, John de Britannia, Earl of Richmond, and under him by St. John, Thibetot, de Vere, and other officers of reputation, who made themselves masters of the town of Bayonne, as well as of Bourg, Blaye, Rioule, Saint-Severe, and other places which straitened Bordeaux and cut off its communications both by land and sea. The favour which the Gascon nobility bore to the English government facilitated these conquests, and seemed to promise still greater successes. But this advantage was soon lost by the misconduct of some of the officers. Philip's brother, Charles de Valois, who commanded the French armies, having laid siege to Podensac, a small fortress near Riol, obliged Gifford, the governor, to capitulate, and the articles, though favourable to the English, left all the Gascons prisoners at discretion, of whom about fifty were hanged by Charles as rebels, a policy by which he both intimidated that people and produced an irreparable breach between them and the English. That prince immediately attacked Riol, where the Earl of Richmond himself commanded, and as the place seemed not tenable, the English general drew his troops to the water-side, with an intention of embarking with the greater part of the army. The enraged Gascons fell upon his rear, and at the same time opened their gates to the French, who, besides making themselves masters of the place, took many prisoners of distinction. Saint-Severe was more vigorously defended by Hugh de Vere, son of the Earl of Oxford, but was at last obliged to capitulate. The French king, not content with these successes in Gascony, threatened England with an invasion, and by a sudden attempt his troops took and burnt Dover, but were obliged soon after to retire. 
and in order to make greater diversion of the English force, and engage Edward in dangerous and important wars, he formed a secret alliance with John Balliol, King of Scotland, the commencement of that strict union which during so many centuries was maintained by mutual interests and necessities between the French and Scottish nations. John confirmed this alliance by stipulating a marriage between his eldest son and the daughter of Charles de Valois. The expenses attending these multiplied wars of Edward and his preparations for war, joined to alterations which had insensibly taken place in the general state of affairs, obliged him to have frequent recourse to parliamentary supplies, introduced the lower orders of the state into the public castles, and laid the foundations of great and important changes in the government. Though nothing could be worse calculated for cultivating the arts of peace, or maintaining peace itself, than the long subordination of vassalage from the king to the meanest gentleman, and the consequent slavery of the lower people, evils inseparable from the feudal system, that system was never able to fix the state in a proper warlike posture, or give it the full exertion of its power for defence, and still less for offence, against a public enemy. The military tenants, unacquainted with obedience, unexperienced in war, held a rank in the troops by their birth, not by their merits or services, composed a disorderly and consequently a feeble army and during the few days which they were obliged by their tenures to remain in the field, were often more formidable to their own prince than to foreign powers, against whom they were assembled. The sovereigns came gradually to disuse this cumbersome and dangerous machine, so apt to recoil upon the hand which held it, and exchanging the military service for pecuniary supplies, enlisted forces by means of a contract with particular officers, such as those the Italians denominate condottieri, whom they dismissed at the end of the war. The barons and knights themselves often entered into these engagements with the prince, and were enabled to fill their bands, both by the authority which they possessed over their vassals and tenants, and from the great number of loose disorderly people whom they found on their estates, and who willingly embraced an opportunity of gratifying their appetite for war and rapine. Meanwhile the old Gothic fabric, being neglected, went gradually to decay, Though the conqueror had divided all the lands of England into sixty thousand knights' fees, the number of these was insensibly diminished by various artifices, and the king at last found that, by putting the law in execution, he could assemble a small part only of the ancient force of the kingdom. It was a usual expedient for men who held of the king or great barons by military tenure to transfer their land to the church and receive it back by another tenure, called Frankalmoyne by which they were not bound to perform any service. A law was made against this practice, but the abuse had probably gone far before it was attended to, and probably was not entirely corrected by the new statute, which, like most laws of that age, we may conjecture to have been but feebly executed by the magistrate against the perpetual interest of so many individuals. The constable and marshal, when they mustered the armies, often in a hurry and for want of better information, received the service of a baron for fewer knights' fees than were due by him, and one precedent of this kind was held good against the king, and became ever after a reason for diminishing the service. The rolls of knights' fees were inaccurately kept. No care was taken to correct them before the armies were summoned into the field. It was then too late to think of examining records and charters, and the service was accepted on the footing which the vassal himself was pleased to acknowledge, after all the various subdivisions and conjunctions of property had thrown an obscurity on the nature and extent of his tenure. 
it is easy to judge of the intricacies which would attend disputes of this kind with individuals when even the number of military fees belonging to the church whose property were fixed and unalienable became the subject of controversy and we find in particular that when the bishop of durham was charged with seventy knights fees for the aid levied on occasion of the marriage of henry the second's daughter to the duke of saxony the prelate acknowledged ten and disowned the other sixty it is not known in what manner this difference was terminated but had the question been concerning an armament to defend the kingdom the bishop's service would probably have been received without opposition for ten fees and this rate must also have fixed all his future payments pecuniary scootages therefore diminished as much as military services other methods of filling the exchequer as well as the armies must be devised new situations produced new laws and institutions and the great alterations in the finances and military power of the crown as well as in private property were the source of equal innovations in every part of the legislature or civil government end of section 11 chapter 13 part 3 recording by michelle walker woodstock uk